Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Hello, Witch Money Podcast listener. I just wanted to let you know that Witch has a brand new podcast. It's called Witch Investigates, and it's looking into the promising claims that you see on products, in the press, or shared on social media. We've got new episodes coming every Friday. I'm going to be back later to tell you about the first few. But for now, I will hand over to Lucia for this week's Witch Money Podcast. Thanks, Greg. And here we go. Welcome to the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. While women and men contribute similar amounts, uh, similar percentages of their pay, men's pay is higher overall, so that does lead to, to a gap. We are at risk of sleepwalking into a poor retirement, and that's one of the big flaws of auto-enrolment. It's a blunt instrument, and it's it's a good start, but that's all it is. It's a start, and really people need to be trying to build on that. It, it does open up some quite existential questions about at what point do you expect people to continue to work, to have a happy society, which is something that government has had to consider in previous reviews of the state pension age. Today, along with witch experts Gareth Shaw and Paul Davies, we have a special episode answering the big question, how much do you need to save for retirement? Find out the average incomes needed for retirement and whether you might need to start putting away a little more each month, as well as the different types of pension available and how to check if you or a woman you know is owed a state pension refund. We are which. Whether it feels like a distant future or very much on the horizon, the question of how much you need for retirement has always been a very difficult one to answer. Just doing a search before today's show, I was largely met with percentages saying you need a certain amount of your current income, but this amount seems to be very much up for debate, which makes the research we've just carried out at which pretty exciting as we surveyed more than 6,800 real retirees this year to find out their spending habits and calculate what you need for retirement. Paul, you headed up the research and worked out averages to retire comfortably as well as for essential living or a more luxurious lifestyle. Tell us about what you found. So a few years ago, we actually ran some focus groups with which members to, to talk about their retirement and how their plans were going. And t- two key questions kept coming up. So people wanted to know exactly how much they would need in retirement. And the second question was, how can I actually get there? So how can I make sure that my savings are on track? So we set about putting together a survey, asking people what they spent in retirement on lots of different categories. So we had our essentials, which included groceries, household payments, utilities, the day-to-day stuff. For the comfortable category, we added in some some regular short-term holidays, uh, rec- recreation and leisure activities, Uh, tobacco and alcohol and 
um, some charitable donations. And finally, we had a luxury category, which had sort of regular and extended long haul holidays, health club memberships, for example, the odd expensive meal outs and buying a new car every four or five years. And for that, we estimated that people spent uh, between 20 and 25,000 pounds every four or five years. So we, we came up with these three different categories of um, retirement living. And in the latest survey, the figures showed that to achieve the essential level, a couple would need £18,000 per year or £13,000 for, for someone living on their own. The comfortable level required £26,000 for two people, £19,000 for an individual. And for the luxury level, the figures were £41,000 for a couple and £31,000 for an individual. And from our findings, Paul, does it seem that these retirees have finished their mortgage payments or aren't paying rent? That's my assumption. When, when you look at the figures for housing payments, which um, average for a couple are about £3,200, that's relatively low. Um, lots of which members that took part in the survey will have paid off their mortgage by the time they, they come to retire. So that, that figure will mainly be um, a, a mixture of council tax payments and those those members that are still renting or have got relatively small mortgage payments. And we surveyed these retired WITCH members in February this year, which was, of course, in the middle of the pandemic. Looking back over the last year, we've obviously been in and out of national lockdowns, travelling and holidays have been out of the question. Our, Our spending patterns have been up in the air, but we've been carrying out these surveys for the past six years. So, Gareth, what effect has the timing had on these results compared with the previous? And do you think any of these changes will have a lasting effect? Really good question, Lucia. I think uh, we certainly saw some significant changes uh, in our 2020 survey. Um, And what we've done in in Paul's research is compared this year's survey with 2019. So we can see the real pre and post pandemic changes in spending. So as you were just saying, holidays out of the question. We've seen a three percent reduction in extended uh, long haul holiday spending um, for two person households and fourteen percent for single person households. We've seen grocery spending rise by six percent for two person households. European travel has fallen. Housing payments have increased. Recreation and leisure has fallen by fourteen percent, uh, and transport costs have fallen by ten percent as well. Um, what we have seen an uptick in spending on new cars, I guess, you know, if you try and rationalise that, you think, well, if people aren't spending so much on some of these other leisure activities, there's something useful every day for them there that they could could be spending their money on. So they've decided to splash out on a new car. So yes, look, nothing in the figures and Paul, I'm sure will endorse this, uh, surprised us. You know, spending is down in the areas that we would expect because we've all been living this. None of us have been able to really go on holiday or or do the kind of leisure activities that we uh, enjoy. So I think next year's survey will be quite interesting to see if we can go back to the pre-pandemic levels 
We may see more turbulence around holiday spending because of all of the uncertainty around travel. But that is the power of doing such a compelling piece of research every single year is you get a real, you get to take the temperature of um, retirement living standards and where retirees are spending their money and, and how external factors can shape that. One to watch out for next year. And and so the next question then is, how do you start preparing and building your pension to reach your income target for retirement? In your recent article, Paul, which includes these survey findings, um, and you can find it at which.co.uk forward slash retirement costs. I really like how you say to think of your pension income in terms of building blocks made up of your state pension plus any private pensions. So, Paul, if you start us off with a state pension, how much could you get per week and what does this equate to per year and what do you need to have done to qualify for this maximum amount? Okay, the, the state pension system is, is fairly complex and so the answer to your question isn't quite as straightforward as, as it should be. Um, that you, you might be covered under two different state pension systems. It, it all changed in 2016 so before then, you had the old state pension. People qualifying since 2016 have been coming up under the new state pension. So broadly, in terms of the amounts, the, the, the basic amount under the old state pension is £137.60 a week at the moment. So that equates to just over £7,000 per year. Um, the full level of new, new state pension this year is £179.60. Um, which is just over £9,300. It's it's more complex in that you're not guaranteed to get those amounts under either system. You might get more or less than those amounts, depending on your your work and history, your, your national insurance record, whether you were contracted in or out of the additional state pension. So there, there's, there's these other factors that, that mean you won't get a set amount. We, we looked at... Um, a DWP database recently, and across all 12 million people that get the state pension, the average figure is about 160 pounds a week. So that's um, so that's 8,300 pounds per year. So I think that's quite a good level to, to aim for. Um, the other thing is is when when will you qualify for the state pension? The, the qualifying age at the moment is 66. So that's been that's been rising gradually since 2010, and that's going to rise again. That's going to rise to 67 um, later this decade between um, 2026 and 2028, and then again in the next decade to 67. So you're going to have to wait for longer to actually get the state pension. So it's, you must include it in your calculations, but just be aware that it's it might be some years into your retirement. You might want to retire at age 60, but then you won't get the state pension to age 67. So you've got to bear that in mind. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a useful addition to all these calculations. If, if you're getting £8,300 and your, your partner's getting roughly the same, you know, you're looking at between sixteen and £17,000 per year to add into the pot. Which is nearly the amount for uh, essential living uh, from our survey findings. I did wonder as you were speaking there, Paul, by the time we retire, will it could it be age seventy? It might be. We we don't know what the government decide in the future, but it, it seems like the, the age that you qualify for the state pension is is only going one way. It's not going to suddenly reverse, and we're all mm. going to get it at sixty. But yeah, let, let's see what happens in the future. But with um, 
with life expectancy rising, actually life expectancy has been rising uh, on a steady curve, but then it's it's plateaued a little bit. So um, I'm hoping that the qualifying age won't rise again. But of course, you know, the government's got to pay for it and it's going to have all, all sorts of pressures on the government finances over the next couple of decades. So let's let's wait and see what's decided. It, it does open up some quite existential questions mm. about at what point do you expect people to continue to work, to have a happy society, which is something that government has had to consider in previous reviews of the state pension age, you know, and, and, and do you make decisions based on people's geography? Do you make decisions based on people's profession as well to have variable state pension ages, or at least to give people earlier access if they've been working in, say, a physically intensive um, role for all of their lives? And then I guess the thing that we can't forecast, you know, Lucia, I'm in my 30s. I'm assuming you're you're close to you being 30. Um, you know, in 40 years' time, what, what kind of work are we going to have? You know, is there going to be mass automation that allows government to pay a more generous universal basic income? There's a trial going on in Wales at the moment for to, to pay people a, a universal income. Is that something that could be the norm in four decades' time that would render something like the state pension? You know, we would have to think quite differently about the role that, a, you know, a consistent, fixed, constant government benefit like the, the state pension actually is. So, as I said, they're quite existential, crystal ball gazing kind of questions that we don't really know the answers to. But yes, I mean, if things stick the same way, as Paul says, in the immortal words of Yaz, the only way is up. And we'll be touching on some more limits of the state pension later uh, when we talk about the the gender pension imbalance. Um, But now for a short break, and then we'll be back with private pensions and how much more you might need to save. Hello, I'm back to tell you some more about our new Witch Investigates podcast. I'm Greg Foote. I'm a science journalist and producer, and I'm leading the investigations. Our first season focuses on putting claims of sustainability under the spotlight. From plant-based to plastic-free, eco-travel to electric cars, I'll be finding out what can genuinely reduce our environmental footprint and what is simply greenwashing. Our first episode asks the question, is plastic packaging always bad? We looked at supermarket own brand packaging specifically, and we found that only 52%, just half of packaging, can be easily recycled by shoppers at home. Our second episode looks at whether your phone comes with an expiry date. That is the ultimate destination of your smartphone. They are ground up into dust. And next week, we're going to be finding out how green an electric car really is. It may well be that in certain social groups, driving a petrol or a diesel vehicle will indeed become the new smoking. Just search for Witch Investigates wherever you're listening to this podcast. And now I will leave you in peace. I'll stop interrupting. It's back to you, Lucia. Thanks, Greg, for dropping in there. We got a sneak peek of episode two and three. Episode one is out now and we're recording this on Thursday and you'll be able to find out about your phone's expiry date from tomorrow. And so now on to the next building block for your retirement pot, which is private pensions. If we take company pensions first, since 2012, employers have had to enroll their staff into a workplace pension and pay money into that scheme. Now, you've probably heard of it, also enrolment, and it comes with minimum contributions for both employers and staff. 
But is this enough? Or to save a decent amount for retirement, should you actually be paying in more? And how much more exactly? Before we hear from you, Gareth, we've also been speaking with Iona Bain about this, who is the founder of the Young Money blog. And she says auto-enrolment should really only be considered as a starting point. You'd be surprised how many people just aren't that aware of uh, the fact that they are already saving into uh, their pension and the fact that that pension is invested in the stock market, that it is a defined contribution scheme, which means essentially the pension is only determined by how much you put in and how well that pension performs in the stock market. Those are two really important facts. And so I think that younger people just think that if they're saving into their Uh, workplace pension, then it's a case of job done, don't need to worry about it, can go off and live my life. Uh, If only that was the case. Unfortunately, I do think that we are at risk of sleepwalking into a poor retirement. And that's one of the big flaws of auto-enrollment. It's a blunt instrument and it's it's a good start, but that's all it is. It's a start. And really people need to be trying to build on that whilst also not neglecting their more medium and long-term goals. Gara, thinking about company pensions as a whole, Iona mentions the term defined contribution there. Can you give us a quick rundown of the types of pensions? Then the million pound question, how much would you need to save to top up your state pension and hit the essential, comfortable or luxury income targets that we've been talking about today? Yes. So fundamentally, there are two types of workplace pension. I'll start with what Iona was talking about, defined contribution. This is where you and your employer put pension contributions into a big pot. And that pot gets invested into a range of assets. It could be shares, it could be bonds, it could be property. It's usually decided uh, by your pension scheme. You may be given some options by your pension scheme. Most people, I think it's the statistics is something like in the very high 90s of percents, choose the default option, which is you know uh, a mixture of shares, bonds, and, and some other assets, largely shares as you're doing your, your saving. That money gets invested. Uh, your contributions get topped up uh, with by the government in the form of tax relief as well. Uh, and they get invested throughout your period of saving. Um, the great advantage of pension saving is that um, your contributions are come out of your untaxed pay, which means you get tax relief on them. When they grow uh, in a pension, they don't get taxed, didn't get charged any income tax, any capital gains tax, any dividend tax. You only get taxed on the at the end when your money comes out. And that's only if you're drawing an income that exceeds your tax-free allowance. I I remember reading, um, I think it was Claire Barrett at the Financial Times, describing the deal of saving into a defined contribution pension as kind of like a meal deal from a supermarket. So you pay for the sandwich, uh, your employer buys your packet of crisps, and then the government tops it up with a, a bottle of pop as well. And that's quite a nice way of thinking about the benefits of saving into a pension. So that pot builds and builds and builds. And the, the great thing about that is that you get growth on your growth because the, the because the growth is tax-free. You don't take it out of your pension during your three or four decades of saving. That will grow as well uh, until you get to the end. And then you decide how you want to generate an income from it. Um, you could take money out in chunks. You could take the whole pot out in one go. Both of those are subject to income tax. You could enter into a, a kind of formal income drawdown plan where you regularly draw a annual or monthly income. Or you could swap your pension pot for, a fi- uh, for an income that will last you sometimes 
10 years, sometimes the rest of your life, depending on on what you choose. It's called an annuity. You can buy one that pays you a fixed income throughout the rest of your life. You could pay, uh, buy one that, that pays you an income that rises with inflation, so it keeps up with rising prices. But you, or perhaps with the help of a financial advisor, choose and have to decide how to generate an income from your pot. So that's defined contribution in a nutshell. The other type of pension, which are quite rare for new savers, um, is a defined benefit pension. Now, this is a type of pension scheme where you make a contribution, your employer makes a contribution that goes into uh, a a big investment pool uh, throughout your career. But instead of having a pot to play with at the end, you get an income paid to you for the rest of your life. Um, And that's usually based on um, the number of years you've been contributing to that pension and your salary. Um, So it could be your final salary when you retire. Often it's a career average, so an average of your salary during the time that you worked at that company. Now, these are described as the kind of gold standard of pensions, and and which is why they're quite rare now for new savers, because a lot of these schemes have closed. They're expensive for employers to offer. You know, an employer has to pay an income to their employee for the rest of their life. Mm. Um, So lots of these schemes are are no longer open to new savers, but they are incredibly attractive. You know, not only do you get a guaranteed income paid to you for life, that usually rises with inflation. It's already baked in. Uh, When you die, there's usually a a pension for your spouse or civil partner as well. Uh, They usually get 50%. There are really generous death benefits for your loved ones and dependents if you die in service. Um, so yeah, they're, they're kind of the gold standard. If you've got one as part of your portfolio, they, they are such a fantastic, uh, advantage for you in kind of deciding your final pension income because of that, that guaranteed income that you're going to get. And, you know, then any, once you've got a a really healthy defined benefit pension or final salary pension as part of your pension portfolio. Often what lots of retirees see, if they have a defined contribution pot that perhaps they've joined later in their career, that's a bit of play money because they've got their guaranteed income from their state pension and from their defined benefit pension. And then they've got this pot of cash that gives them the freedom to do what they want. I think of my father-in-law, you know, he, he worked for the civil service for decades. He got his state pension. He got a final salary pension. And then he also was doing uh, additional voluntary contributions. So he had this little pot defined benefit, uh, defined contribution pot which, you know, bought him a nice car and got him to, to do up his house. And that's how he viewed that pot. It was more play money than something that would, would give him a, an income for the rest of his life. Does the defined contribution pension not come with the kinds of death benefits you mentioned that the defined benefit contribution uh, come with? With a defined contribution pension, your, heir, your heirs can inherit that. It doesn't form part of your estate for inheritance tax purposes as well, uh, which is quite attractive in terms of mm. tax planning if you think you're going to be affected by that. Um, if you die before the age of 75, it could be inherited tax-free. If you die after the age of 75, your heirs will pay income tax on it at their tax rate. So yes, there are some some attractive death benefits uh, in defined contribution. It is something that you can pass on. 
And so the big question then, how much would you need to put away in one of these private pensions to reach the retirement income targets we've laid out today for essential, comfortable or luxury living? So looking at a, a couple initially, uh, we talked about the, the comfortable, comfortable target of £26,000 per year. So as we said, the state pension provides a, a nice chunk of that, so £16,000. So that leaves roughly £10,000 for you to produce via your private pension. If you move up to the luxury level, of course, the, the target is a bit more challenging. Uh, again, if we're saying that the state pension produces £16,000 of the £41,000, that leaves you nearly £29,000 to produce via your, your workplace pension, any private pensions that you might have. Um, looking at a, a household where there's one person living there um, on the comfortable front with our £19,000 target, that, that means just over £12,000 in private pension. And finally, again, for, for a single person aiming to achieve the luxury level, um, with, with the £8,000 of state pension, that means that as an individual, they'd need to produce about £28,000 per year via private pensions. That That's a really steep, steep target. Okay, Paul. So we know how much we need to be generating per year, but how much do we need to be saving in total to reach that amount? And, and how do I know if I'm on track to, to get that amount in retirement? Okay, so this is the $64,000 question, but the answer isn't Mm $64,000. So it's how big an overall pot do you need to deliver these targets? So this is central to to all of this. So let's take pension drawdown where the money stays invested and you can take out chunks each year to to achieve your target. So whether it's the £26,000 or the £41,000 for a luxury retirement. For a couple... Um, to achieve the comfortable target, you'll need a total pot in drawdown of £154,000. So that's, so that's for a couple combined. And again, that's before tax and that's before you factor in the state pension. So that might seem quite low for some people. That's entirely in, uh, achievable. Um, but that's because, um, you know, we do assume that you've reached state pension age and you're, you're adding in the £16,000 from the state pension, which we talked about earlier. So that's for a comfortable retirement. It's obviously a bigger pot if you want the luxury level of, you know, standard of living once once you retire. So that pot for a couple in drawdown is £442,000. So, again, you know, that that seems like a huge amount to save for your retirement. But don't forget, you know, the, the government will be adding some, your employer will be chipping in if, you know, if you're in employment, that's for two people, you know, you're going to get investment growth over that period. Uh, and, and as we said, you know, eventually when you reach 67 or 68, you're going to get the state pension. So those are the overall pot sizes to aim for. And how do you know if you're on track to, to meet that target? Because I'm sure you both, like me, have pensions all over the place. Um, we've talked about consolidating pension pots in the past on the podcast. How do you know if, if you're on track? Well, again, it's fairly difficult at the moment. You, you, you might have three or four different pensions. You might work in different jobs and move around and then you open a new scheme. So it's a case of making sure that when you do get your pension statements each year, you have a read, you don't just stick it in the drawer and ignore it. So that will give you, A, it will give you a current total of how much is in your pension scheme. 
and they they usually um, contain a projection on on how much you're you're due to get once you reach your retirement age. So you know, do some simple maths, bolt together your different pension schemes, and just just have an idea of how much you're you're on track to get. On on the state pension, you can get a separate state pension forecast from the government. So you can you can just put in your national insurance details. And it will tell you how many qualifying years you've got, where the gaps are in your state pension, and again, how much you're due to get when you reach state state pension age. So again, do do a bit of maths, keep all keep all the figures um, handy, start a spreadsheet if you want, you know, just just to keep you know um, keep it on track and have a good idea of how much you're, you're due to get. It's not an exact science, but at least it will give you a good indication of, of where you are. And we're expecting a, a new platform, the pensions dashboard, to come in, which should help us with with all of this, shouldn't it? Yeah, of course. It, it's it's going to be a, a great innovation whereby you can you can just log on to one site and see all your all your pension schemes, see, see how much um, is held in in the different you know plans. And again, there's going to be tools that will help you understand how much you're going to get eventually. So having that all in one place is going to, is going to be a great step forward. And Gareth, uh, if you don't have a company pension, in a nutshell, if there is ever a nutshell with pensions, what other options do you have to save for retirement? Yeah, there are private pensions um, that you can uh, open up if you're self-employed, for example, you don't work for a company, uh, even if you want an additional savings vehicle um, outside of your company pension as well. So, uh, you know, there there are lots of different variants of this, the kind of growing type is called a self-invested personal pension. That's one that you open up usually with a... um, Something called an investment platform, which is a website where, that allows you to to, to trade investments. Um, you can open up a self-invested personal pension, choose your own investments, and uh, save independently. There are also stakeholder pensions, which are a, a bit of a legacy kind of product um, that uh, allow you to save into a relatively narrow range of investment options where prices are capped. Although they were capped at a time where uh, prices were very high on on investments, and now they've through economies of scale they've come down, which makes stakeholder pensions a little less attractive. There's also other products like the Lifetime ISA, for example. These work differently to pensions. They aren't pensions, but they are retirement savings vehicles. So a Lifetime ISA allows you to contribute uh, a maximum of £4,000 a year. The government will top that up with a a 25% bonus, and you can open one between the age of 18 and 40. um, And you can either use the proceeds to buy your first property or um, for uh, your retirement. So if you don't use the money to save uh, for um, a property to buy a property, uh, you can access that at age 60 and um, draw your savings out of that. And the difference there is that um, you you don't get tax relief in the in the in the way that you do with a pension. You get this bonus, uh, which is twenty five percent. But the government doesn't want to touch your money when you draw it out. So it's a bit like a, a normal ISA is that the, the proceeds of that are taken out tax free, which is not what pensions are. You are taxed on the income that you draw from your pension. Um, The downside of a lifetime ISA is that you can only put in £4,000 a year. There's a real cap on how much you can contribute. You can put up to £40,000 a year 
um, mm. for, for the vast majority of people into a pension. If you're a really high earner, that, that starts to drop. But with a, a lifetime ICU, you can only put in £4,000 a year. So if you've if you got a bonus or you sold part of your property or you've you know, you, you got a, a big windfall from your business if you're self-employed and you wanted to put that into your pension, lifetime uh, ISA is not going to be a good option for you because of the, the cap on how much you can contribute. Whereas a, a self-invested personal pension will allow you to put in tens of thousands of pounds. It could be much more attractive. Now, we should also give a mention here to the gender pensions gap. It's a huge problem. And according to a recent report, women have 25 to 45 percent less in their pension pots at retirement than men. Here's Amanda Latham from the pensions consultancy firm Barnett Waddingham with some of the reasons why women are facing this inequality. The biggest driver we see is is the gender pay gap. So while women and men contribute similar amounts, uh, similar percentages of their pay, men's pay, it, it, it is higher overall. So that does lead to, to a gap. More women working in lower skilled and lower paid occupations. More of those women working in those type of roles who are on zero hour contracts or they're working multiple part time roles. So they're not reaching the threshold for automatic enrolment savings. Low levels of, of default contribution rates just generally. Um, also, the, the sort of the limits to employer support to offset the effect of, of career breaks, so the discontinuation of, of full pay and, and pensions during that period. And in addition to this, recently another pension imbalance has come to light with tens of thousands of women now owed a state pension refund. Gareth, what's happened here and how can you check if you think this might apply to you or your mum or your gran? Yeah, this has been a, a bit of a cock-up, really, from, from the Department of Work and Pensions. turns out that thousands of uh, women who claimed a state pension before April 2016 have been quite severely uh, underpaid um, what they should have got. And the government is now embarking on an exercise to put those women back to the place uh, where they need to be in some cases paying out lump sums to to women who who have you know a, a got a, a significant underpayment the way that's happening depends on um depends on who you are and and why you might have been affected by this so it seems to be women who um a, a few kind of relatively niche groups so women who got divorced after retiring uh, are one of the groups affected women whose husbands turned 65 before march 2008 and were getting less than 60% of their husbands basic state pension and married women who are getting literally no state pension uh, but might be getting an additional state pension so it, it, it is a it is a, a kind of ragtag group of of people whose circumstances all vary. Now the, the government is kind of doing this automatically, so it's reviewing its pension records to find out who should have got an uplift in their pension but didn't. Um, the group I I, I mentioned, um, you know, w- women whose husband turned sixty five uh, after. March 2008 and are getting less than 60% of their pension, the government should be automatically topping them up. Widows whose husband di- whose husbands died after April 2008 and who are getting less than 60% of their husband's state pension while he was alive, uh, they should be automatically topped up um, 
widows whose state pension just never increased after their husbands died as well. Uh, they should be automatically topped up. And um, somebody who's over 80 but isn't being paid at least £80.45 a week in state pension, they should be automatically um, topped up. So you should be proactively contacted by uh, the Department for Work of Pensions. But there are some groups where it might be worth being proactive and contacting the Department for Work and Pensions. Um, so there's kind of three criteria. If you reach state pension age before April 2016, if your state pension is less than 60% of your husband's basic state pension and your husband turns 65 before the 17th of March 2008, if you, if you fit into all three of those categories, it would be really prudent of you to uh, check in with the DWP and see whether or not you've been underpaid your state pension. Similarly, if you got divorced after retiring um, and you benefited from and you should have benefited from your husband's national insurance record, again, it's worth uh, checking as well. So there's lots of information online about this. I, I, th I just think if you if you qualified for the state pension under April uh, before April 2016 and you're a woman, it's just worth checking to see whether or not there's an underpayment that's due to you. Thanks so much, Paul and Gareth, for joining us today. And thank you for listening to today's show. As always, if you've got a comment or question on anything we've mentioned, please let us know in the comments wherever you're listening to the podcast or on social media at Which Money. And for more on pensions, visit which.co.uk forward slash pensions. This episode of the Witch Money podcast was recorded and edited by Angus Farker, produced by Rob Lilly with additional support from Ian Aikman and Kim Carver.